Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome. To the listeners of the Work Life Podcast, this is your host, Agnes Uheretsky, and today we're recording a special episode um, ahead of the Agile Working Event, uh, which is going to take place in March in London. So we're recording a couple of episodes that is maybe not directly linked to work-life integration or work-life balance, but still very interesting subjects. And today we're going to be talking about Agile transformation and there's none other uh, here with me today than Sebastian Bonicel. Hello, Sebastian. Good morning. Um, Sebastian is an Agile transformation lead and Agile coach. He works at E.ON. E.ON is one of the major public utility companies in Europe. They are present in 30 countries. They have 33 million customers. So pr- probably or maybe you may be getting your electricity via E.ON. And um, E.ON started a a transformation journey towards more agility several years ago. And and we're very excited to have Sebastian here with us, um, who is working on this project, um, supporting the development of agile business models through coaching and training. And uh, I was quite surprised to see that you also have a background in astrophysics. So, Sebastian, now over to you. Would you mind telling listeners about you a little bit, about your career, how you got into um, whatever, you know, this is agile and scrum and transformation um, and, and, and what drives you in this process? Absolutely. I mean, thank you for giving me the chance to do this. I mean, I've, uh, I have a very strange journey, I have to admit. I, I did study astrophysics at university at master's level. Um, I'm a very down-to-earth person and very open. Um, and what I've basically done over the years is discovered that I have a passion for people. But I started my career indeed working with instruments, with with photons, in fact. Um, I am a, a believer of light, as we call them ourselves. I was an engineer in photonics at uh, Ericsson. Um, but what I discovered is that I like to find, to identify problems and to solve them, whether it's a physical problem, whether it eventually became a digital system such as software. Um, so over time, I developed skill set around data, process, uh, and systems analysis. And this is where I find myself at E.ON. 
I uh, I started the the, uh, the business analysis ladder at, at Eon as the company in 2005, so it's a while back now. Um, I worked in all the different areas of the business, from the technical to customer facing, um, and I evolved my analysis skill set. And what I also started to to discover is that um, whilst I like to resolve problems, and I'm pretty good at that, to be honest, over, over the years, I've also started to really gradually gravitate towards wanting to work with people more. Um, and the reason for that is because I realize, and I have matured that thinking over time, is that there's no point having processes in life if you don't have people behind it. Um, and and this is where one of my passion has come out. Whilst agile is almost a consequence of that passion, I've developed a skill set around relational thinking. That some people call that the science of how people relate in the context of work, more specifically. Now, I am a committed Christian, and as such, I believe that uh, we are all relational in some shape or form. Outside of work, I, I work in a church while I support the church and I'm helping lead teenage groups, different home groups. I lead a, a running group because I'm a keen runner. Um, but even in that context, I can see there is a need for relational thinking. And it's a, it's a fascinating topic. It's one of my passions. And naturally, agile in the context of work relies on people, on relationships. Without the people there, without them to engage and collaborate, it just doesn't work. And part of the transformation in any company is about that side of the relational thinking. How, how do we do this? Um, in two, 2012, I did a, a course, a training, through a charity called Relation, Relationship Foundation. It's a branch of a uh, think tank based in Cambridge called the uh, Jubilee Center. And the premise of the course is that we are all relational in everything that we do. And that relationships are the key to unlock the true meaning of work as to why we go to work. Um, and it's part of the values of what actually work delivers. It's, I mean, think about it like a, a profit and loss, a loss balance in work. You know, we look at the numbers of finance. We look at the numbers of our suppliers, etc. What about doing a P&L for relationships? And since that course, I've kind of tried to apply those thoughts to everything I do. And actually, Agile is a very good fit to that because the principles of collaboration, of failing fast, of letting people become autonomous are all about getting the relationship in the right place. Outside of work, I'm a, I'm a committed Christian. I go to church. I am married to a lovely British girl. Um, we have three children and they're all growing very fast. Um, I am a, a passionate triathlete and I have competed in a number of countries over the last 13 years. Um, I've lived in Germany, in Sweden, I've worked in Italy, Spain, France, mainly Europe. Um, so I enjoy the, the multiculturalism of life and particularly when it comes to relationship. And that's really my passion is how do we get people to talk to each other and work together? I wouldn't call it in harmony, but at least in, in peace and, and, and purpose. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this introduction and, and it has already been so rich that I could just I think ask about 20 questions uh, as a follow-up. Um, so I need to get myself together and focus on <laughs> on, on this agility. But um, I think that um, that what what you have said is 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 actually um, that's that's partly why I really enjoy recording these podcasts because I get to hear people's personal stories and it's always so rich and and it's usually you know many twists and turns and and as one of the guests said that 
you know, what have, what you do in work and, and what you do outside of work, these passions and these areas of life are like a dance. They, they're performing a dance together. So it really enriches, you know, I, I'm, I, as you just explained, your, your Christian faith and, and your, your volunteer work and your family and your sports and, and all of that probably really enriches your experiences and work and then in turn iterates with, you know, all of this, this purpose and this driven and, and, and it's very, very nice to hear actually. Mm. So basically coming towards, um, the transformation journey of Eon that we will discuss here, um, on our podcast, we, we do talk a lot about how to get companies to come to the tipping point where they realize that something needs to be done. And we often talk about that there's the a spectrum. So you have the startups on, on one end of the spectrum, which are already set up on these principles of democracy and decision making and transparency and treating people like adults and that they can figure out how and when is the best way to, to perform their work that will lead to the best outcomes. And that on the other side, we have companies that face some kind of crisis uh, where they realize that, okay, something has to happen now, something has to change. Um, I would maybe refer to your presentation that I just read before the podcast, which which is a very nice drawing of a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and, and then the, the, the many, many companies in the middle uh, where they're chugging along just fine um, and, and they're just do, continuing with business as usual without kind of looking around in this VUCA environment. So am I right in assuming that, that E.ON had some kind of a, a, a shakeup when they decided? Or, or what was the triggering point that they decided, okay, let's, let's see what this Agile is and, and how we could do something with it? Absolutely. I mean, what I um, when I was reflecting on this post the, the, uh, the conference we had in September, which is the, the presentation you're relating to, um, Dave and I, uh, who is a colleague working with me in this transformation, we've realized we effectively have two streams of reasons why we're moving towards agility. And these are independent, but they are starting to merge into one. The first one is there are people like myself and Dave who just want to make it happen because we believe it's the right thing. Um, we are preachers in the desert, usually, but we believe in the principles just because it engages people and it gives opportunities to move into a different way of thinking. It's the change of mindset. However, we need to give a bit of context of E.ON, which is a second track, which is also happening in parallel. In 2014, E.ON developed a new strategy of splitting the company into two separate entities, two different companies, E.ON and now Uniper. And the idea was that E.ON wanted to rebrand itself into a customer solution-centric only company. So it would effectively move all its non-renewable assets into Uniper, i.e. The, the coal, the nuclear, the oil, the gas power stations, the old assets, and become a green company with customer solution only facing um, a strategy. Now, that has now happened. The split is complete. And E.ON finds itself in not no man's land, but in a place where we have to develop new ideas, we have to innovate, we have to go into new markets. And certainly our comfort zone of selling, of buying, of distributing and selling gas and electricity is only a small proportion of who we are and our identity. And therefore we find ourselves merging into markets, A, we don't really understand, B, that we need to 
really get to grasp very quickly with and see where we are competing with people or companies who are much, much more agile, much more adaptable than we are. So the stream of the necessity of changing Eon to become this customer-centric, customer is facing competition, which is what he didn't have before, and the stability that we had in terms of developing propositions for gas electricity is nice. We know we're good at it. But actually, that's only a portion now of what we do. So I didn't realize, actually, we're not so good at the new, the new world. How do we move to that space? So then you've got these two streams, the bottom up and the idea of the top down, starting to join ranks. And 2016 has been the year where we've started to see the merging of these two streams into one, one vision. It's really exciting. Well, that's fantastic. And, and, and I just wanted to, to maybe dig a little deeper to here because um, it, it, what we see if, from working with companies and organizations is that, that when, when there's a crisis or when there's a little bit of a shakeup, it's, it almost seems counterintuitive to then embark on new markets or new ways of working, right? It, it seems like we surely should be going back to the, you know, to, to how it was, where we feel comfortable, where everybody's competencies can be still continued as, as it is. So, so it's, it's a bit of a, a, a counterintuitive moment, right? To say, okay, we have big changes, so let's change even more. Let's even change how we work and what we do and, and responsibilities and structures. Yes, it is counterintuitive. Uh, but I think when it comes to a transformation of that scale, particularly with 45,000 employees across the group in 30 different uh, countries, it's more a, a realization of the necessity of changing rather than it's nice, let's move into that space. And Aeon has got to that point where there is a necessity to change. It's not something that we can just wait and see what happens. If we don't change, Aeon as, it, as we knew it up to this point will not exist. I know that's a bold statement to make, but that is the reality of the, the world we live in. Things move so fast that it is a necessity. It is not something that we want to do because it's cool, it's fashionable. Mm-hmm. Now, your, um, if I understand correctly, the way you have constructed the, the approach to this agile transformation was based on these three pillars of the environment, the people, and innovation. Now, w- would it m- maybe be interesting to listen a little bit on, on you know, how you conceptualized and maybe quite practically how you, how you went about um, doing this, uh, this transformation project? Yeah. Um, So it is fair to say that those three pillars, I like the term, um, have emerged as consistent themes across the different regions where we are working. So we're mainly talking about Nordics, Germany, Eastern Europe, uh, UK and elements of Italy. Um, And independently, although the same players have been playing in those different regions, we have seen that those three themes have come up as the key enablers for the transformation. The first one is by far the most influential, and I'm hoping that listeners will agree to that, is the people. And the reason why this is absolutely crucial is because, you, you know, Eon has developed a great foundation with some fantastic people across the group at building power stations that would last for 60 and 70 years over time. If you move into a different space where you have products that are coming out of date within a year because new technology is coming in, those people have to evolve. Those people have to think differently. And this is where innovation comes in to disrupt that way of thinking. But the people are really critical. And what we've seen is that 
we're trying to do a number of things with those people. Either we're trying to recruit new people, and we can talk to that, talk about that maybe at a greater length later if, if we have space and time. But also it's about with the people that we have here, how do we give them the autonomy? Because they're great, they're fantastic. How do we get their passion? How do we put a fire under you know, their, their, their bums, let's say? For or more in their bellies, yeah. <laughs> to give them the autonomy to do the right thing. Because there is no question that we have fantastic people, we just need to enable them to do the right thing. And building autonomous teams, which is one of the foundational agile principles in the world of any corporation, is one of the most powerful forces you have around a transformation. If you get autonomous people who think autonomously as building organisms, teams that are cross-functionals, they're given a problem, but you give them the autonomy, the budget, the space, and the speed for them to work you will see amazing thing happen but these people need to be enabled and that is that is a big challenge okay maybe if we we stop here before we move on to the others because this is something that comes up over and over again also in our work because we are you know looking at it from the flexible work and self-rostering and and really giving people the space and time to decide when where and how long they work and what we see and i'm interested now in how this evolved in Eon, what we see is that even if there's a either a top-down push or a bottom-up push for flexible work or, or more uh, flat structures, it, it comes down a little bit to the line managers, how well they can formulate what needs to get done. You know, it's yeah. not about, you know, okay, now you come in here and you sit around from nine to five, whatever, but it's really to, to be able to formulate what the thing is that needs to get done here and then we kind of reverse engineer it to okay how do we achieve that but how was that uh, at eon so this is where we enter a very different paradigm because my personal perspective and this is based on experience in eon in nordics in particular where we've done a lot of that work but also in the uk now is the, the middle management in the world of agile is called the permafrost because you have a top down and the bottom up, and in the middle you've got a, a thin layer of ice where things just are really hard to change. And I'm, I am part of that layer, so I can say that. Um, um, but what we have seen is that actually creating autonomous teams is not about getting the people, telling the people what to do and how to do it. It is to just give, get the people, the right people into the play, into a place, collocation, getting them into a single place, giving them a problem and that problem could be something that they themselves identify and then just letting them go and that layer of middle management acts as a not a buffer but as a remover of any obstacles that come in the way of that autonomous team so practically in nordics we created three teams two in digital and one in a customer centric kind of a crm team with business and it people we put them all into one place and we said Okay, ultimately, our executives would like to do, be able to do this by this point. How will you do that? And then the middle management just acted as a, okay, what do you need to make this happen? Do you need a single room? Here it is. Do you need network access? Do you need full automation of uh, a link between the data center, which is in another country, so we have no loss of um, um, of lo- loss of um, uh, we have no loss of time when a customer goes onto the CRM online, for example. So we have 
no latency. These things which are critical because we have third-party contracts around our communication, let middle management remove these obstacles and the team just get on with delivering what is right. And that is the whole idea of creating autonomous teams. And I think in a, in a company like E.ON with hundreds and hundreds of middle management layers, we have um, a great opportunity to get those people to think differently. It's not about defining the work and getting it down to the team to do. It is about enabling those middle management to think that they are here as enablers and not as um, as blockers. So just to continue down my path of being the devil's advocate here because i really i really enjoy your explanation and i think you're putting it really so succinctly and really really clearly so uh, in a, in a in a in a kind of 20th century hierarchical structure um, it was a kind of a natural progression that if you've done well, you you were promoted and, and you could stroke your ego and become somebody else's boss. And then all of a sudden, this kind of control or power or status is, is a little bit taken away from you, right? Because you become this servant leader who has to create this enabling environment. Is that uh, fair to say that this is um, the kind of change that, that's happening? Yes, it is. And I think this is the hardest part when it comes to middle management to accept. It, it is that, that sense of loss of power. Um, I'm somebody who is very open, so I'm quite happy to accept that others are better at what I'm doing. <laughs> um, but in some cases, it is hard for individuals to believe that also and to live it. Um, and let, let, let me be very clear, Eon has not got the holy grail answer to that question. Uh, we are still in a position where we have people who are still trying to control things and micromanage individuals. And actually, it creates friction because then you have two worlds that collide. You have those that are wanting to do the right thing, to do it autonomously, to do it quick, to do only the, right, the things that matter. But then you have a, a, another set of people who are saying, well, actually, no, this is what I've promised and these are the expectations so that I can keep my, my job. Mm -hmm. You will do this instead. So that conflict is still there. But I think until you expose it, until you create that friction and it creates heat and you then purposely top down say I am going to remove that heat by either moving you to another place or accepting that some people may not actually be able to work in that context you will have it but that requires action it requires courage and it requires very deliberate um, a very deliberate strategy to make things move forward mm, fantastic now what were maybe the the one or two main lessons from this transformation journey already. And I don't know if you want to throw in maybe one or two of the biggest obstacles where you thought, oh, we're never going to make this. <laughs> yeah. And, and there is um, there is one which I would like to relate to, which is still about people, is um, I have done a, a fair bit of research about individual and how people think. Um, and because I'm in that position, I find myself being quite selfish in the way I think sometimes. I go into work and I want to do the right thing for my career. If you put 10 people into a team and you create, try to create a collective that has the collective has a purpose, you have 10 individuals that will have their own agenda. And for me, the idea that our world, our society is becoming much more individualistic is a real challenge to an agile company. 
because it means it becomes so much more important to really gather these people together to make them work together. And the collaborative aspect of Agile is one of the killers. If you don't get that right, it just doesn't work. Mm. And that is one of the key, block, not blockers, but one of the things that we see happening if we have individuals and getting those individuals to collaborate is very difficult. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's absolutely true, especially because people no longer stay in companies for 10, 15, 20 years. Everybody yeah. has, is everybody's always searching. I think that's perhaps one of the biggest taboos to talk about. But but even if you're happy and you're in a job, you're still keeping your options open. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, one practical way we're trying to solve this, and again, you know, from a, a HR perspective, this is a real challenge, is the fact that we want to try to recruit people differently. Mm-hmm. We used to, as a, as, a, as a matrix organization, recruit on role. So we need a skill set. We go and find it on the market or we find an individual that wants to come and join us. And that's it. The problem with that is that you end up with individuals that have their own identity and is too defined on, the, on their skill set. What we're now trying to do is we're trying to define how we recruit people based on the collective thought, which is we want traits in people that are collaborative, relational and that show empathy. Now, you could argue we all, people should be already be doing that, but putting more emphasis on the behaviors and those traits rather than just the skill set, I think is a game changer. But it does require a different way of interviewing, a different way of training the interviewee, the managers, the, the people themselves, etc. And it's changing away from individual thinking to collective thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the one of the first times I heard about this was from the chief um, employee experience officers of Airbnb because yeah. they're recruiting purely on culture. Who is going to be fitting in the com culture and, and contributing to the objectives of the company because they say, okay, well, we can always send them on a course to learn this kind of skill set. But, you know, th they also are putting so much emphasis on this collaborative aspect that, you know, you don't recruit a disruptor, someone who is going to then undo all the things that you've already done. Mm, absolutely, yes. So what are the lessons learned? What what are kind of now you're looking back and, and think, okay, this this was a, a great learning opportunity or, or this is, you know, now we know why we've done that or, okay, this we could have done a bit differently. I think the key lessons learned for for me in in this uh, in the last five years, I guess, is we underestimate people. We underestimate our people. Mm. We put them in cages or in boxes to be to be a bit more um, politically correct. Um, uh, a, a box that has a name. And our lesson has been: don't do that. Give them the opportunity to grow, to try things, to become more autonomous with other people. Give them the choice to make their own choices, give them space to innovate, give them, it is not just about get, giving them 100% usability, it is about getting them 80% and give them 20% of their own time to do things differently. We underestimate people, and I think this is one of the biggest mistakes we made uh, early on, and we should have just trusted them much earlier. That's one of the first things. The second is, I am now getting to the point where I am more and more convinced I don't want to recruit people who are not worth it. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a harsh thing to say, but that's the world we live in. Yeah. There are We always make compromises because we want to get more bodies on seats sometimes to accelerate something. Let's not compromise on getting the wrong people in because we just need people. We 
it and this is one of the biggest mistakes as well. We we just get people for the sake of it. No, just get the right people. Mm. And and there's so much time pressure also on HR. You know, this this is one of their key metrics is the time to filling the position. Yes. And and so they are under pressure there to fill the position. If the line manager is putting the pressure, and then. And then, you know, we know how this ends. And, and often there's a lot of churn at the end because we rushed so much in the beginning before really defining who we want, what kind of person, what kind of team member we want, instead of just, okay, what's on their CV or which school they went to. Yeah. And, and if I were to give a, a third element, which I think from a transformational perspective has been key, is the innovation side, which is as large corporations such as E.ON look to go into new markets, enabling innovation and allowing people to fail fast and having the context to do that is absolutely critical to changing the mindset. Because, you know, if you, and I think it's Albert Einstein that, that, that said that if you're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, well, that's madness. That's the definition of madness. But E.ON has been very good in the last two years at saying, no, we're going to isolate this, put, create an innovation hub over there. We'll throw 100 ideas every quarter into it. 20 will come up for a trial on the market. Five will come out that will actually make us money. Let's do that continuously. And suddenly we're starting to see a great wave of ideas of people who want to try things. And that is, that is transformational. That is one of the key learnings that innovate as early as possible, give the space to people, don't underestimate them and let them go. I think it's wonderful to see this kind of corporate honesty emerging, right? When we, we're just honest with ourselves or you are honest with yourself saying we don't have all the answers, but if we try a hundred different things, you know, 80 will be a, a, a mistake or a failure but but 10 is going to work and then five is going to be the absolute most amazing breakthrough that's right yes and you don't get to those five unless you allow this space for for these hundred to happen great yeah. so before we go to the last question sebastian maybe i ask you uh, how can um, listeners get in touch with you find out more about your work Absolutely, I'm I'm very much reachable on on LinkedIn. I have a profile there. I'm very active on on LinkedIn, and if you search Sebastian Bonicel, um, you will find me there. And um, I'm I'm usually very good at responding quite quickly. <laughs> Great. So coming to the last question, which is always the same on the Work Life Podcast, if I could ask you, Sebastian, one advice that you would give to a CEO to embark. You know, maybe shake the fear or to, to start on this project of, of, of becoming a more agile organization, this transformation journey. What would be your advice? I, I would say that um, to start the transformation, you need three elements. One is you need a sponsorship at executive level and you need somebody who get agile. Don't underestimate how complex that is. You need coaches to actually start small fires in different places and the different teams. And the third thing that you need is don't underestimate the people you already have. Give them space. Bring those three things together, and suddenly you have a very large fire that will just transform the whole organization. And I think when you look at the people, it's how they interact, how their attitude towards each other will evolve over time. And if you get those people, the right people with the right attitude, you will see amazing things. Wonderful. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sebastian. I really, really appreciated this conversation. And I'm sure just like me, listeners took away, you know, so much clarity really about what this means. So thank you. And I wish you really the best, uh, all the best uh, for 2017 and beyond. Great. Thank you, Agnes.